From the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California, I'm Frankly, and you're listening to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, eating your young and paper airplanes. In addition, we're joined by Dr. Jeffrey Wells discussing bird conservation. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Rockatron 5000. And the real famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It feels like I haven't seen you in a few months. I know. It's been, man. That's amazing how that works. I mean, it's only been a week, right? But yet <laughs> oh. it feels like an eternity. <laughs> Something must be uh, happening in the space-time continuum. Well, you know, massive densities of financial ruin, I think, is what's happening. It's yeah. sucking, like, all the essence of time and space into <laughs> some vacuum. I don't know where. Okay, so speaking of space, Japan wants to fly a paper airplane from the International Space Station. Actually, yeah, the idea is to create these little models, 30 to 40 centimeters long, and let it glide into the atmosphere, but use these designs to eventually design actual aircraft that will glide back onto the surface of the planet safely. And so what they've done is they've taken this model airplane and let it withstand Mach 7 air velocity for about 10 seconds, and apparently it seems to fly pretty well in the air tunnels. Wow, okay. But so they want to fly it from the International Space Station into the atmosphere? Right. So they predict that once this plane falls to ground, when it hits the atmosphere, it'll hit a terminal velocity of Mach 7. Okay. So, so far, it looks pretty good. I would expect in Mach 7, though, that any paper airplane would burn up very quickly. I mean, it's made of some special ceramic. It's origami paper, I think. That's the trick. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've wondered is, like, if someone was to jump out of the spaceship, would they freeze first or would they fry upon re-entry? <laughs> it depends which side of your body's facing the sun. Oh, yes. Uh, cooked on one side, uh, <laughs> frozen on the other. That's an interesting uh, thermodynamics problem just to find out. <laughs> well, you can maybe set up some kind of Carnot cycle where you <laughs> freeze, thawing, and uh, heat transfer. Anyways, this is really cool stuff carried out by Professor Shinji Suzuki, a professor of aerospace engineering at Tokyo University, and it was actually reported in Japan's Mainichi uh, Shimbun. All right, Frank, so uh, are you pretty hungry right now? Had a nice dinner and um, chomping on some donuts. Okay, well, you know, you, you could complement that meal with uh, maybe eating your son or daughter. <laughs> Don't have one. If you're not happy with the ones that you wind up getting, you could always eat them and then make room for the next generation. Isn't that what, like, some species of fish or polar bears or what other animals do that? Well, a lot of animals that will eat their young. Right. Researchers had always thought that uh, this was because of times of hunger. Right. But now a new evolutionary model says that uh, they will selectively eat their weaker offspring in order to favor stronger ones and could actually be better. Oh, knife its own baby, right? <laughs> Sounds very political. Well, in a way, it makes sense because if you're an animal out in the wild, you don't necessarily want to invest the resources in an organism that might not make it into adulthood. So right. it seems like a good source of protein huh. if you need it. <laughs> just something to think about in case you're ever hungry or... Uh, you don't like your kids. Yeah, your child starts acting up. Just tell them, hey, we could always eat you and have another kid. So-called civilization we live in. That must not be very natural then, huh? Uh, nothing about our civilization is natural these days. <laughs> 
Anyways, the researchers were Andrea Manica, a population biologist at the University of Cambridge, and it was published in the recent edition of The American Naturalist. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Jeffrey Wells will join us to discuss bird conservation. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, interest in bird watching has been steadily increasing and has never been higher. Paradoxically, though, the number of birds has been on a steady decline, largely due to changes in the environment brought about by us humans. Well, what can be done to help aid bird conservation efforts? Join us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this issue is Dr. Jeffrey Wells. Dr. Wells is the senior scientist for the International Boreal Conservation Effort and Boreal Songbird Initiative. He has penned the new book, Birders' Conservation Handbook, North America's 100 Birds of Conservation Concern, which discusses this problem and some solutions to it. Uh, Dr. Wells, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, glad to be here. As you mentioned in the book, bird watching has actually become quite popular in recent days. Well, the numbers keep growing. The most recent estimates put it at something like 80 million Americans who watch birds or feed birds or take their kids out to the local wildlife refuge to see the big flocks of geese or ducks or, or whatever. And pretty amazing that in many parts of the world, uh, or the United States, you know, you can go into, you know, your local convenience store, and along with picking up the staples like bread and milk, you can pick up a bag of bird seed in the local convenience store. That's how popular bird watching and bird feeding has become. And you previously worked with the National Audubon Society. This has been largely due to efforts by a group such as that? Yeah, it's, it's, I think, largely due to the efforts of groups like that, but I think it's even more, it's just because for some reason, people have always had a special connection to birds through the ages. People have written about birds, and artists have depicted birds, and they're in our lives. They make sounds that we can appreciate. They're harboring spring, you know, returning. They're just sort of around us all the time in homes, gardens, backyards, everywhere we go. And so for some reason, people have always just really connected to birds, I think. And in today's age, as things become more complex and we do spend more time in front of the computer and inside, I think it becomes even more important for many people to have some kind of connection to the natural world and the bird that you can just see outside your window at the office or at home becomes that connection and is really important for people. If people really aren't familiar with birdwatch, what are some uh, recommendations for those people who want to go and take a look at birds? Yeah, well, the wonderful thing about birds is that they are found everywhere, so it is really easy to, to get introduced to birds and bird watching. There are um, Audubon chapters across the United States, and there's a, a large group of bird watchers and bird people, and most cities have strong clubs or Audubon chapters or birding groups of one sort or another, so you know, many museums have connections with that. And so there's offerings of classes and bird walks all over the place now, just about every place in the country, every, almost every community is within striking distance of a place that offers some kind of a bird course or bird walks and things like that, and you can get out with people who are knowledgeable and, and learn from them. And of course, 
the numbers of bird books and bird guides has just exploded on the shelves over the last few months, uh, last few years, and it's really easy to find a book that will help you at any level of interest so you can learn about birds. And there's so many good optics now that are inexpensive, binoculars and telescopes and things like that. It's really easy to get involved and, and to learn, and they are so easy to find a bird anywhere. It's not like a specialized sort of thing where you have to spend thousands of dollars to go on a special trip or buy expensive lab equipment or something in order to study them. You can just look out your window and study the birds, count the birds, or get involved at whatever level you want. Uh, yet, as you mentioned in the book, of course, is that human encroachments onto a number of different environments is threatening a lot of bird populations. Yeah, habitat loss and degradation has been the single biggest factor impacting birds globally, and it's not really a great surprise. Of course, long-term, the biggest threat that we're dealing with for birds and all wildlife and lots of issues is, is not surprising to anyone. It's, it's climate change, global warming. And so it's sort of made worse by the habitat loss and fragmentation we see because one of the things that birds and a other animals will have to do as the climate warms is they're going to have to sort of move their ranges northward or upwards in elevation. And if the places that their habitat and that they would move to are cut up by roads and agriculture and industry and things like that, there's no place for them to move. And it makes it really difficult for them to be able to adapt to the changes. So it's exacerbated by habitat loss. But I always do like to make sure people do realize that climate change is the biggest threat in the long term for most of these birds, and we just have seen more and more about it in recent months. It, much of the global warming science, of course, people are discovering unexpected events and things that they hadn't predicted. And I know that in the Millennial Ecosystem Report that was released a couple of years ago, you know, one of the things that was predicted in that was the increase of these sort of nonlinear events. And, and these sort of feeds into it where we're seeing bird ranges move it seems more quickly than we would have even predicted from modeling tending to move north or upward in elevation and that's been documented in the UK and in the US and in many birds. One of the surprising factors that's happening is this sort of a decoupling of life history events. So as insect emergence has started to happen sooner in the northern hemisphere, a lot of the birds the residents of short distance migrants will be able to track that and, and arrive earlier. So we've seen many birds arriving about two weeks earlier than they did 50 or more years ago. And they've tracked that earlier emergence of vegetation and then of insects. And they can track it and make sure that they have their young at the point when there's the greatest insect abundance. But the birds that are wintering in the tropics where there really isn't much for cues to tell them when to leave, um, they rely on photo period and day length, and those birds have tended not to arrive that much earlier, maybe just a few days earlier. So at least in one bird that's been studied in Europe, they found that the birds are arriving too late to take advantage of that peak of insect abundance, and there's not as much insect to feed the young, and they've seen lower reproductive output. So that's one of those sort of surprising things that people probably w hadn't really thought of or predicted that could really have a major impact on a lot of these birds. Mm. So it's all these sort of nonlinear effects that have impacted the bird populations. Exactly, yeah. And the sorts of nonlinear feedback issues in the north where permafrost thawing and peatland drying uh, and forest fires that are exacerbated by climate change, by global warming, uh, that releases more carbon and then allows m more of that sort of thing to happen. Of course, that impacts the birds both by changing the habitat there as well as just exacerbating the, the warming effect. 
So, you know, lots of different ways that these feedback loops are impacting birds. And then, like I said, if you think of the ability of these birds to track the habitat that they need to be in as it tries to move north, as the hab- you know, the trees and the, and the vegetation communities try to move north and they're cut off by industry and, and roadways and things like that that don't allow that to happen and then the, the, the ranges become more fragmented and you see little populations that may wink off and out, go extinct and across the landscape in these little pockets. You know, that's where you see that connection between the habitat loss and fragmentation that's happened over the last 150 years in the U.S. and the climate change effect. So in your book, you talk about 100 birds that are affected. What are some of the uh, more common ones that have been really affected by this? Well, there's a number of birds that everyone recognizes as being, you know, highly endangered, like the whooping crane or the California condor. These are birds that were reduced to numbers, you know, 16 or 17 birds in the case of the whooping crane, and I think even lower numbers than California condor, spotted owl, birds that are in the news. Um, So the book talks about a lot of birds like that, but there's also a, a, a whole set of birds that have had uh, major declines that people may not be as aware of. Birds like the Cerulean Warbler that's declined by more than 70%, um, a bird that reaches its highest densities in the Appalachians of the U.S. and occurs in the eastern U.S. and just a little bit of southeastern Canada and winters down in the northern Andes of South America. And by the way, that's a bird that's being impacted majorly by mountaintop removal mining in the Appalachians for coal to generate electricity for the northeastern United States. Many of the people in the U.S., including birders, flip on their lights not realizing that they're buying electricity that is causing the destruction of hundreds of thousands of acres of habitat and where the Australian warbler occurs in highest density. More birds like the olive-sided flycatcher or the bay-breasted warbler or Canada warbler, all birds that have declined by more than 50% that mostly breed in the Canadian boreal forest and pass through the U.S. in migration in spring and fall, but are thought of as relatively common birds to see and yet have shown these significant declines and are of concern. So there's a kind of an interesting mix of, of birds that are well known for being highly endangered and birds that people may not realize have declined in recent years. Well, certainly I think a lot of people are concerned about this, but may feel somewhat powerless to actually influence any of this behavior. Um, what are things that people can do to actually help bird conservation efforts? Yeah, well, in my book, I have really made a point of trying to talk about positive conservation actions that are already happening for birds. The book's divided into 100 species that are profiled, both their status and their and the threats that are impacting them. But for all of those birds, I talk about taking place that are helping and, and recommendations for other activities that need to be done. So my main point in, in all of this and in some of the introductory chapters is to say, look, we have seen in other examples where when we recognized that there was a decline and we figured out what the problem was, we were able to fix the problem and grow more birds, if you will. You know, bald eagles is a perfect example, or peregrine falcons or brown pelicans, birds that were really impacted by GDT and other things, and we were able to bring them back. And lots of examples like that. And so I want people to realize that it's not a doom and gloom scenario. And the other good part of this is that the things you do that help any one problem help many other problems. So there's a lot of great things you can do. I have five things that are really some of the best things you can do for birds and they're things like make your life energy efficient something we hear about in environmental issues and global warming you know ride share get a fuel efficient car use energy wise appliances compact fluorescence again if someone's interested in birds just thinking about when you put a compact fluorescent bulb in think of 
protecting your favorite bird. It's not just sort of a general feel-good thing, but you're actually helping particular birds. You could support efforts to increase protection for North America's boreal forest or other large, some of the large remaining virgin forests and habitats left in the world. Canada's boreal forest is North America's last large unfragmented forest. There's 1.3 billion acres and most of that has still never been developed and, and never been cut over. So it's a great opportunity. That includes trying to do things like buying paper products that are made from recycled fiber instead of made from virgin Canadian boreal forest or other forests. Live, work, and buy locally, supporting local businesses, local and organic farms, things like that. You're reducing global warming pollution, uh, reducing pesticide use, helping birds. Another obvious thing you can do is support nonprofit organizations that share your concern and values for birds. And lastly, of my five, uh, vote for leaders who embody family-friendly conservation ideals. Well, these are certainly all very good recommendations. How aware do you think most people are about a lot of these issues? Unfortunately, I think that is one of the key problems we're seeing, that there's this great rise in interest in birds and people who love to watch birds and care about them, but they don't understand what the real threats are to birds, and they don't understand how their actions and activities might be impacting them. I think that's partly because we've made our global economies very complex and our production lines to get products and move things around the world is, is very complex. So you, you really don't know where when you get a tissue or a paper towel, you, know, you don't really think about where that may have come from. You know, it's ironic that you could be looking out your window at a bird in your backyard, white-throated sparrow or a dark-eyed junco that came out of the boreal forest of Canada and you could be wiping up a spill while you're enjoying that bird with a paper towel that came from a virgin boreal forest. You're sort of destroying the habitat while you're enjoying the bird. There's lots of examples like that in all different areas. And so trying to get people to understand the connections, that's one of the things that I am hoping that people will get from my book and from hearing about it is to start thinking about where your products come from, start thinking about what the real threats are to birds, not to get caught up in maybe some issue that is not the most important one, not the thing that's going to be most important in deciding the fate of these birds and getting involved. So for people who are interested in this issue, can you give some resources to uh, take a look at and investigate some more? Yeah, well, of course, I'd love to have people take a look at my book and see specifics of a lot of these things and information. But on the web, of course, there are lots of good places to get more information about birds and conservation. And, of course, most of the major groups now have these action alerts that allow you to, you know, with the click of a, of a mouse button, send an email to elected officials or others to weigh in on a particular issue. The website borealbirds.org is a great one for getting lots of information about the boreal forest and boreal birds. National Audubon's website, audubon.org, has a huge amount of information, allows you to get involved, and also provides information about local chapters. Ducks Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited Canada are, are great uh, groups to be involved in. The Nature Conservancy has a great website with lots of information. Uh, Defenders of Wildlife, similarly, and National Wildlife Federation, American Bird Conservancy has a wonderful website with lots of information about what's happening in bird conservation in the U.S. So it's just a few of many, uh, just a little bit of Googling, and you can find out about all these groups. And like I say, many of them have um, local chapters you can get involved in and get out with a person to learn more about birds and to find out what's going on in your local community. I certainly hope people will go take a look at that. But I'm just curious maybe to close, if you could say, how did you become interested in this issue? And maybe some final words for, for people to think about in terms of bird conservation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I got interested in birds from my family. My grandmother and mother and father got me interested in birds, and then I was taken under the wing, if you will, of uh, somebody from an, an Audubon chapter in, in Maine, where I'm from, really got me started. And then that led me into being interested in birds and bird conservation, and then I went on to get my master's and Ph.D. at Cornell University in avian ecology, and I really wanted to put together my interest in ornithology and science with my interest in conservation and my concern about the environment, and this was a great way to kind of put it all together, and I ended up working for Audubon and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and a number of other groups, and now a group called the Boreal Songbird Initiative. So all came together, but really the spark started with a young uh, person who was interested in the outdoors but was encouraged by family and by people in the community. And I think that's a key way that people can help get more people interested in birds. You know, even just taking a child birding is a major way to help in conservation. Well, it is a great story, and I certainly hope people will go take a look at your new book. It is, of course, The Birders Conservation Handbook, North America's 100 Birds of Conservation Concern. Dr. Wells, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Jeffrey Wells discussing bird conservation. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokantron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I'm your only friend. I'm not your only friend. But I'm a little glowing friend. But really, I'm not actually your friend. But I am. There's a picture opposite me of my primitive ancestry, which stood on rocky shores and kept the beaches shipwreck free. Rockatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what kind of bird would they be? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, uh, what kind of bird would they be? And maybe a little bit of a reason why. Dr. Wells, you ready to play the game? Okay. All right, here we go. Person number one, what kind of bird would he be? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I think he would be a golden eagle, you know, golden wealth. The Trump Tower, you know, shining sort of stuff, but also the eagle being sort of powerful and liking to pounce on its prey and capture small businesses that <laughs> are waiting to be taken over. That, I think that's really Trump, all right. Uh, okay, number two is uh, the starlet Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton. Let's see. Maybe the uh, ruby-crowned kinglet, the small bird about the size of your thumb, always moving around, flitting its wings, always putting up its little red crown feathers to sort of get attention. 
uh, maybe undeservedly so. Absolutely, yes. Sometimes uh, the kinglets, I think, probably get attacked by hawks when they do that too much. (laughs) All right, number three is Mr. Conservation himself, Al Gore. Hmm, that's a good one. Let's see, maybe a, uh, a whooping crane. Cranes are a symbol often of health and well-being in many cultures, and they're sort of seen as sacred birds, but they're sort of very large, tall birds and and have very kind of focused eyesight and a stature to them that makes people notice them. With whooping cranes being an endangered bird, they have the uh, limelight often. People pay attention to them, and hopefully Al Gore is not an endangered species, but he's got the attention. It's really worth saving. Number four, though, is uh, Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau, hmm. Well, the first bird that comes to mind is the white-throated sparrow, just because it has a, a very distinctive song, and for many people it's thought of as kind of the, the sound of the, the wilderness of the wild. And it's not a flashy bird, you know, it's a sparrow, so it's kind of brown and muted, but handsome, but not too uh, ostentatious. So I think that sort of fits Thoreau. Indeed, all in all, very natural bird. Yes. Uh, okay, and finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. Ay ay ay! <laughs> well, gosh, how about something like the peregrine falcon? Kind of a, a hawkish sort of bird, large and commanding, and, and a, definitely a bird that is not afraid to, to be fierce and go after things. And <laughs> leave it at that. Whether it's right or wrong, it'll go after it, right? <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Dr. Wells, I, I do want to thank you for again sticking around, playing our game, and of course talking about your book, which again is the Birders Conservation Handbook. North America's 100 Birds of Conservation Concern. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was our pleasure. Thank you again. All right, and now it's time for the question of the week. And here in the studio, we have to answer the question of the week, the wise man himself, Forrest Gump. Forrest, how are you doing? My name's Forrest. Forrest Gump. They call me Forrest Gump. How are you doing, Forrest? Good. You know, down here in the South, we got Bubba Gump's donuts. Mm Mm-mm, they taste so good. And you know why? No, why do they taste so good? The oil gets all over through the mouth, gives you that full flavor, and that's why it tastes so full and great. Oh my goodness. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music.